Welcome to season two of the ASCA Viewpoints podcast, the podcast where we talk about the student conduct profession in higher education. I'm Jill Creighton, your Viewpoints host. Thanks for waiting on us listeners to get you this very special edition of the ASCA Viewpoints podcast. Today we're welcoming special guests Jill Dunlap from NASPA as well as Terry Lynn Hines from NASPA to talk to us about the new proposed Title IX regulations. I apologize for the delay in getting you the episode. I think I've just apologized for the last three or four episodes now. So again, I really just appreciate you bearing with us. Uh, a couple of things to note in this episode. Um, first is just a personal thing. Uh, for those of you who have not met in person or for those of you who know me, um, I got braces a couple of months ago. Uh, I'm a now an adult with braces and it's been an interesting uh, thing to navigate from a speech perspective. So you may hear my speech patterns change or um, a new kind of way of pronouncing things that might sound odd to you or inconsistent with uh, previous episodes. So I appreciate you bearing with what has now turned into a little bit of a lisp and I'm hoping that that is not a permanent fixture in my speech pattern, but who knows. Um, In any case, we're going to go through some of the details of the regulations in this episode. We're going to talk about how you can comment um, in the 60 days because we are now amidst the 60 day window. And before the episode, I've got uh, our bios of our speakers here. So we have, again, Dr. Jill Dunlap, and she is the Director of Research and Practice at NASPA, Student Affairs Administrators in Higher Education, based in Washington, D.C., Prior to joining NASPA, Jill worked closely with college student survivors of interpersonal violence in a professional capacity for more than 14 years at three different campuses. In 2014, Jill served as a non-federal negotiator representing four-year public institutions on the Violence Against Women Negotiated Rulemaking Committee. In 2016, Jill was invited to serve as a program reviewer for the Centers for Disease Control, National Center for Injury Prevention and Controls Research Grants for Preventing Violence and Violence-Related Injury. Jill is currently an adjunct political science instructor at St. Xavier University in Chicago. She completed her PhD in political science and public administration at Northern Illinois University, where her dissertation work focused on the experiences of students impacted by sexual violence on campus. Her research can also be found in the 2016 book, Preventing Sexual Violence on Campus, Challenging Traditional Approaches Through Program Innovation. Jill recently returned from Bogota, Colombia, where she taught a summer course on gender-based violence from an international perspective as an invited scholar at LaSalle University. Our second speaker today is Terry Lynn Hines. Terry is the Director of Policy, Research, and Advocacy with NASPA Student Affairs Administrators in Higher Education. With over a decade of experience in higher education policy analysis, institutional research, assessment, and planning, Terry has a comprehensive view of effective and appropriate data use for the support of student success from campus to Capitol Hill. Since joining NASPA in February 2017, her policy portfolio has has expanded to include a variety of issues salient to student affairs professionals, including college costs and affordability, campus sexual assault prevention and response, free speech and controversial speakers on campus, campus carry of firearms, and more. Previously, as the Director of Research and Data Policy for the Association of Public Land-Grant Universities, or APLU, Terry worked primarily in institutional accountability and transparency as a project manager for the Voluntary System of Accountability and Student Achievement Measure Initiatives. 
Her prior work in institutional research, assessment, and strategic planning on two regional comprehensive campuses in the upper Midwest has been an invaluable foundation to the role she plays in Washington, D.C. Terry holds a bachelor's degree in government from Cornell University and a master's degree in social service administration with a concentration in health administration and policy from the University of Chicago. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Jill Dunlap and Terry Lynn Hines, both from the NASPA office staff. Today we've got Terry, who is the Director of Policy, Research, and Advocacy, and Jill, who is the Director of Research and Practice. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks. So we always love to get started by talking about your journey into your current role, and I'm really excited to talk with you as staff members of a professional org rather than campus-based professionals, because it's a a bit different in terms of your lens on the profession and all of that. Uh, But I was hoping you can tell us how you got to your current roles. Uh, Why don't we start with Jill? Sure. Thanks so much for having us. And I came to NASPA by way of campuses. So I um, started in a professional capacity working in student affairs about 14, almost 15 years ago now. So I've worked at three different campuses, primarily in the role of equity and inclusion, but also working specifically with violence prevention. Um, So at each of those three campuses, I wrote and managed um, Office on Violence Against Women grants through the Department of Justice and then providing direct services to students who have been impacted by sexual assault, dating violence, domestic violence, and stalking. So I have a a pretty significant background in working with individuals who have been impacted by violence. I was, you know, really fortunate to have been a part of the uh, 2014 VAWA Negotiative Rulemaking Committee. So that sort of, um, I think, brought me and my my experience to the national level a little bit. And then the position at NASPA opened up, and I just thought it was a really great opportunity to expand what I was doing and had always done at the campus level to working with campuses across the country and working on these issues at the national level. So that's how I come to my role at NASPA. Excellent. And how about yourself, Terry? So I actually also come from campuses, but not from a student affairs background. Um, I worked in institutional research and assessment at, well at a couple of campuses in the um, upper Midwest, um, so regional comprehensives, both public institutions. Um, my master's degree, though, is in social service administration, which is also social work. So the, the sort of social justice, the program evaluation, the, the policy implications for how public policy affects actual people on the ground is something that has always been uh, part of what I consider. Uh, core function of my job, well, even when I was doing institutional research, which most people wouldn't necessarily connect. Um, I came into NASPA following uh, working at the Association of Public and Land-Grant Universities. I was there for about five and a half years, primarily focused on data policy. Makes sense from the institutional research and assessment start that I had. Um, but was really looking um, at the time to do more direct uh, policy work that related to students on campus and student success, focusing on the broad set of issues, also recognizing the the national conversation that we had going on at the time around college and the value of college and the need to sort of close equity gaps between under historically underrepresented populations um, and majority populations. So really trying to, to find a place that would allow me to do a little bit more proactive work on that. The position at NASPA came open and here I am. So I'm, I'm very fortunate to be able to get to do work that I'm, I care about deeply on a daily basis for 
And both of you have kind of, I would say, pretty fancy titles. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what it actually means to be the director of research and practice and what it means to be the director of public research and advocacy? Sure, I can start. Um, so actually, my role at NASA is a new one within the past year, so director for um, research and practice. And I'm really excited about taking on that new role um, because I think that it will, I will be able to help the association in formulating, um, a, you know, multi-pronged and multi-year research agenda around a lot of the issues that Terry was talking about and um, just sort of, you know, assessing what it is that our members need more data around and how do we collect that data for them and then translate like that into practice that um, helps all of us become better student affairs professionals. You know, in regard to some of the, the current things that we have, um, you know, on the table, we're currently um, working on an IRB approved project to look at respondent services across um, the United States and in terms of which campuses are providing respondent services and, and how that impacts the current um, Title IX regulations and um, the the focus on due process and, and what campuses are already doing on, on that front. So we're really excited about that. We're just getting ready to kick that survey and that um, study off. And so we'll have results hopefully within the next few months that we can share with practitioners around the country. And it will also help, I think, inform the policy work that we do at the national level. So um, we have a wide variety of things that we work on, especially with some um, other national partners and in terms of um, data that we collect and that we then, you know, translate into um, usable research for our members. But that is just something I think that might be of specific interest for this particular topic. Excellent. And we asked you both to be on the show today to talk about the proposed Title IX regulations. Uh, it was a, a nice little surprise Thanksgiving gift from the U.S. Department of Education for those of us down in the U.S. I know that the document is just so thick. I know I've sat with it and it is just, it's a lot to digest. So I'm hoping that our conversation today can be more relevant than kind of going word by word through the technical guidance, but also kind of highlighting the things that are really unique or things that might be massive shifts for our campuses. And uh, really what I'm most excited to talk about is how campuses or individuals or organizations can participate in the negotiated rulemaking process going forward. Uh, why don't we start with any highlights that are in your minds about what is really different from the 14 proposed guidance and the 18 proposed guidance? So I can, I will start with that because Jill's going to have a lot more detail and a lot more, um, she'll be able to speak to more of the direct impact on college campuses and particularly Title IX and conduct officers. But I think generally um, the tone of the proposed rule uh, is is very prescriptive. Um, it, it sort of accepts up an expectation for our college campuses that I don't think is necessarily appropriate for student conduct proceedings. So we're, we're concerned about that and we're concerned about just that overall um, feeling going into the whole proposed rule that it feels as though there's a, a very definite focus from the Department of Education that uh, campus conduct proceedings when it comes to sexual assault and sexual harassment will be similar to courts of law. And that's never been really something that our college campuses, it's not a standard that we should be held to or that we have been held to. And so we're, we're, we're paying attention to that and to the, the possible implications that that has. Um, and that's a general comment not related to any of the specifics that are included in the, the, the rule. Other than that, there's there's some there's some nods the department tries to sort of say we're we're making this better for campuses. We're not entirely sure that that's true. There, there, there's 
several sort of safe harbor provisions, but those we think are really rather than sort of safe harbor and protections for institutions, they're really going to open our institutions up for liability and our individual practitioners as well. So we're concerned about sort of the way that things are phrased. Um, there's a little bit of potential, um, I, w- I would hesitate to say duplicity, but some, you know, perhaps things aren't as clear as they want it to seem in, in, in the language that is used in the rule. But So that's my general framing comments. And Jill, as I said, is going to have a lot more detail on that. Sure. I think I might just add that, you know, I, I agree with everything Terry said in terms of it being really prescriptive in certain areas. And then there are some areas that they sort of, um, you know, open the door to and then really didn't provide a lot of substantive information. So, you know, in particular around informal um you know, adjudication proceedings. And, you know, while some may hail that as, you know, being something that many survivors, you know, even in my own experience would be really excited about because it doesn't necessarily lead them down only one path toward an adversarial adjudication process. Um, There's not really any safeguards there for how to do that appropriately or what sort of training might be needed. Um, And so we're really overly prescriptive in some areas. And then in some other areas, it's just sort of left to, um, you know, campuses to to guess about what that might look like, um, which, you know, I think could lead to some, um, you know, misguided assumptions about how to do that best um, without any specific training. And so I also think the other thing for me, just having done this for so long and worked with so many really great professionals that do this every day on campus, is that there's a, um, a misunderstanding, I think, of what's actually happening on campus. And, and the sort of tone of a lot of the, the regulations are that, you know, campuses aren't, aren't doing right by accused students. And I just don't think that that has um, always been the case. Are there, you know, exceptions on either side where campuses may have mistreated a survivor or mistreated you know, um, a respondent in a case. Absolutely. And we've seen those, you know, blow up in the headlines. But I think that the the underlying assumption that, you know, campuses are um, coming at this with a victim-centered or an unfair or, or biased approach is really um, a misunderstanding of the really great training that a lot of our, our members and student affairs professionals around the country have undergone in the last few years to really try to get these cases right. I completely resonate with your last comment there, Jill. Um, and I know, listeners, this might be a little confusing with me, Jill, as your host, and Jill Dunlap as our, one of our guests. Um, so just know that we're probably not talking about ourselves in the third person ever today. Uh, but the the comment you made about, you know, campuses have been doing this well for a long time um, is a, a public comment that um, ASCA entered into the public record during the open U.S. Department of Education uh, hearings last October. And that just feels like so long ago. Um, and I'm also not necessarily seeing the fruit of those public comments uh, demonstrated in the proposed guidance. Uh, but the the statement, I think, that you made about some areas are really prescriptive and some areas are really loose, I think is also quite concerning. And one of the examples that I'll give in terms of being highly prescriptive is the introduction of the potential for literal cross-examination, so direct questioning by one party to another. But instead of being one party to another, it's party A's advisor to party B and party B's advisor to party A. Uh, What do you make of being that granular in this type of guidance? Tackle that one? Yeah, yeah, I can start with it. But um, I'm going to talk about the general sort of approach of of that level of prescriptiveness and guidance. Um, I think I'll I'll leave aside for now the question of cross-examination and these types of, of, of cases just 
as a general rule because I think that that is not generally a practice that we would support. But the the that level of sort of administrative um, specificity in regulations like this is really unusual, and it's generally something that. Uh, NASPA as an association, and I think many of the associations in D.C. that represent higher education try to steer uh, away from, try to steer executive agencies and, and, and Congress away from, because it really doesn't recognize and doesn't value the diversity of, of campus contexts. So we have a ton. I mean, there's, if you just think about, you know, degree-granting institutions in the country, there's 3,500-plus degree-granting institutions. They all exist in communities that all have their own specific context and, and um, culture. And so to try to be that specific about this is the way that everyone must do it really means that we're going to get it wrong um, more often than we're going to get it right. So allowing for flexibility, allowing for campuses to make the best decisions and then relying on our regulatory processes and our executive agencies for oversight. So when a campus does make a mistake, um, either intentionally, if they're choosing to, to, to you know, sort of sweep something under the rug, or accidentally, the role of the executive agencies should be to help provide some, some guidance to get them back on track. So it shouldn't be this very, very prescriptive, you have to do it this way, there is the only one option from the executive agencies, but the executive agencies do have a responsibility for that oversight piece. And that, that can be a little bit frustrating sometimes. We want them to be specific enough without them being too specific, but in this case, they're very definitely too specific. And I might just add, Jill, that I think, you know, the, the, again, the, the focus on due process and, you know, I, I will say that every hearing that I've sat in on allowed for the respondent to ask questions to the the hearing convener um, or, you know, whatever that, that person's role was um, defined as under policy. But so, again, this this notion that we now are um, requiring it and in such a specific way and frankly, I think has the potential to harm both parties. And so, you know, you, you've created a scenario where I think many respondents who may have felt comfortable going into these types of hearings on their own now may feel like they really need to have legal representation. And so, and then what does that mean for, you know, a complainant in these cases? And so I think we're just sort of forcing students down this really um, terribly more adversarial route than um, it has been previously. And I and I think, it's, you know, in my mind, it's really sort of a, a hammer in search of a nail that we are, you know, so convinced that the department is so convinced about the lack of due process rights that we are being, that they're being overly prescriptive for campuses and, and not recognizing that some of these protections were already in place. And, you know, that would, it's going to require a change for some campuses, but not all. And that, uh, you know, I, I do think that, that this is, this has the potential, this really adversarial process to just harm both parties um, that are participating in it because it's, it's setting out at the outset that this will be that adversarial. And so I, I just I think that in an in an effort to sort of rush to to help respondents in these cases that you know we've we've overcorrected and and I think it has the potential to really do damage to to both parties that are um, that are you know party to this kind of hearing. Oh, I fully agree that it has the possibility of creating more harm to all parties involved. You know, one of the things that the student conduct profession prides itself on is creating educational environments to resolve all types of misconduct cases. And I'm I'm quite frankly very worried that this actually is trying to force elements of criminal courts into our campus processes. I also have seen, you know, quite a few in my in my career time, quite a few survivors who 
did not want to go in front of a hearing panel or who did not want to go um, have their um, sexual histories exposed in front of strangers. And I totally get that. And respondents not wanting to have anyone else know that this accusation even exists in the world. Um, And so I'm just really worried that this live hearing component and these cross-examination components are going to have a chilling effect overall on reporting and participation in formal process. So I was hoping I could get your thoughts on that. I agree. And I think your point was really salient to me about, you know, that the respondents don't often want people to know that they've been accused. And so, you know, the idea of how many people now have to be involved in this life hearing is just sort of, you know, expanding the number of people now on a campus that know. And on smaller campuses in particular, you know, you may have hearing board members who are, you know, a respondent's professor. And so, you know, having to worry about that moving forward. And so, again, I think, you know, the, the news media coverage of this so far has been that, you you know, survivor advocates and um, victims' rights groups are the ones that are totally opposed to this. But if I were, you know, a respondent, I would be equally concerned about some of the things that you've just mentioned, Jill. And I, I agree with you that I think um, we're we're creating a scenario where not only will you know, survivors or complainants maybe decide not to report because of this adversarial process. But you may frankly have respondents who, um, you know, decide not to participate either because it has gone down this road and of the number of people that will now be involved in a live hearing process and the burden of, you know, feeling like you might need legal representation. So you may see respondents just drop out and, you know, transfer to a different school rather than sort of go through this process. And so I, I think that there's, again, the potential for harm for both both sets of students when, when we go down this road of creating more criminal justice-like processes on our campus. Yeah, I would echo certainly the lack of confidentiality and privacy is is a huge concern. Um, There's there's just from a broader general higher education records law approach, you know, FERPA protects what aspects of a student's educational record can be shared. Um, But in this case, you know, there's provisions in the proposed rule that would not restrict the, you know, that the, that either party could discuss what they, what is they, the evidence that is shared with them as part of a proceeding. Um, and I, I believe that the intent there is so that they can discuss it with their advisor or with an attorney, but there's not a, there's not a limitation on that. So that, that opens up some pretty big concerns about, you know, uh, retaliation and, and publication of information. And that's just, that's a, that's a pretty big red flag for me inside of a, a campus conduct hearing um, outside of any of the sort of, you know, whether or not it's going to chill, pe- chill people's participation, which I absolutely agree with Jill, with both Jills, that it will. Um, I think that it's going to, we're going to see more more respondents and more complainants um, really not understand what they're getting into if they do agree to go through with a formal process and then get in the middle of it and, and suddenly be um, felt like they're trapped. So I, I'm concerned about that aspect, definitely. So why don't we shift to talking a little bit about the broader lens, which is the definition change, how we define sexual harassment or uh, gender-based discrimination has shifted with the new guidance. Um, so the, the quote, I believe, is that it adds qualifier that the unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature must be so severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive that it effectively denies a person equal access to the recipient's educational program or activity. And that addition component is the so severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive piece. Uh, What do you make of the uh, kind of raising of the ceiling? Do you want to start, Terry? Uh, I can, but I think you're probably going to have more uh, history on that particular point. Um, Generally, I think that the narrowing of what institutions are required to respond to 
So on the face of it, there's a lot of people that are going to respond to that and say, okay, this is a, this is a way for institutions to have some flexibility about, you know, executing their, their own decision making um, and to really, uh, you know, there's other language in the rule that says that they're allowed to provide support services to students who choose not to go through the formal process or who um, report incidents that don't meet that definition. But um, I think the concern is, is more about the history of higher education. Um, so going back, certainly not in the last five years, I think we've seen a lot of change in how higher education responds to sexual assault, not just in higher education, but it's, as the, in our country as a whole, the Me Too movement has certainly changed the conversation in pretty drastic ways. But um, if you think back to, you know, the, the 90s, the 2000s, you know, even the early 2010s, um, I think there was sort of this belief that institutions really didn't want to take on these cases. They really didn't want to risk, you know, something making a headline or, or something, you know, any kind of bad publicity. And so I think that that fear is is justified that if, if we allow institutions that much flexibility in choosing what what cases that are you know are eligible for formal process and formal resolution, um, it's a concern. Um, I think that most of our campuses at this point, again, recognizing the broader change in our cultural conversation, most campuses are going to do. I mean, their best interest, their their first interest is making sure that their students are safe and are able to go through things. So I think that the the bad actors shouldn't overrule in this case. But again, the department should be acting in that role of oversight and guidance to prevent that action from the bad actors. And I feel like this narrowing of the definition really sort of is them saying, we're not so interested in, in, in engaging in that oversight role as much as we um, maybe should. I agree. And I just think, uh, I don't, it just doesn't, you know, in this cultural climate that we exist in, in this country, it just seems so... I don't even know. I don't even know the word for it. I, it just seems so um, like we're sticking our head in the sand and ignoring what's happening around us to narrow the definition like this. And I think a lot of what I do as I'm reading through the regulations, honestly, Jill, is that I'm thinking about how our colleagues who are student affairs professionals will understand these changes and how will students understand them. And so for me, the idea that, you know, a student may now get the message that, well, you know, they, you know, I, I, I could go to class with someone who assaulted me, but, you know, now I have to understand whether I have to understand the notion of, you know, such severe and pervasive misconduct that it, you know, is effectively preventing my access to educational programs. I have to understand what educational programs are. I have to know exactly who to report this to, and I have to know where it happened. And so the, the, you know, I, we may get into all of those other individual pieces later, but the, the, the massive sort of reframing that is going to have to happen on campus to on campuses to implement these changes. Um, it, it sort of is a sort of like, how do you uneducate people about what we have come to know as misconduct that is unwelcome of a sexual nature um, that is reportable. And now we're telling students, well, that's not actually serious enough to to make a reporter. There's nothing the institution can really do for you here because we're not effectively barring your access to any of our programs. And so for me, there's a real um, a real danger here in, in how um, students will understand this and if they're just sort of taking away the message that anything goes again and that things aren't worth reporting or that these processes are so adversarial that why would anyone want to begin to go down the, the 
you know, the path of engaging with them. Um, there's no determined timeline. So I, I just, I am really concerned about the, the chilling effect that these rules will have on campuses and how, how students will digest all of this new information, given that we've spent the last five years sort of educating them about how, you know, inappropriate misconduct and um, that sort of thing will be taken seriously by campuses. So what is the, what is the impact of, of all of this on, on students and how they understand these processes? Well, and the reality of our campuses is that, you know, we've been talking about in in ASCA and on our campuses for a while that the compliance components that come out from the Fed, that's a floor, not a ceiling. And so when we had the, the transgender student guidance polled last year, you know, we were talking all about that doesn't mean we can't add protections for students and we should. Uh, but it is a little scary that the campuses that um, maybe are not as interested in that protection or, um, you know, perhaps don't have the resources to apply the investigatory resources to those protections. Those are the students and those are the campuses that I really worry about. And, and also to your point that, you know, we've raised a generation of students under one set of expectations because we have to remember that, you know, the, the standard will now be the same in K-12 um, in terms of the definition, most likely. How we shift that entire mindset, how our campus-based advocates who are doing prevention work are changing that, um, and how we are working with our respondent services to understand what this really means. Um, so I think that there's a lot of scary room for interpretation in some places and for campuses to start doing their own things in weird ways. Uh, But I also do appreciate that the guidance opens up this ADR component or alternative dispute resolution component. I think that's something that we've been asking for for a while. Uh, We always have, you know, followed that 01 guidance about mediation being strictly prohibited. Uh, But now that we have campuses experimenting with restorative justice resolutions or other types of uh, alternative or informal resolutions, I'm excited that we are now kind of more permissively expressly uh, allowed to play in that arena in terms of figuring out how we can best hear all parties. Um, but I agree with you that it is concerning that it's not uh, not as limiting any any longer without additional guidance. Um, so what are you thinking that colleges and universities might be doing to introduce these programs thoughtfully? That's a great question. I think... For me, that there again needs to be some sort of like what referring back to what you were saying about the the floor, right? That we this guidance doesn't really give you that and just sort of open the door and then didn't tell you what's you know through the door. And I agree with you that I think that um, ADR is an is an option that campuses have been seeking for a while. And frankly, in all of my work with survivors over the years, they were seeking it as well, right? Like I can't tell you how many students I had who I sat across from who said, I absolutely will not report to Title IX. I will not report to student conduct. I just want them to know that what they did was wrong. Um, and that, you know, some of the restorative practices absolutely allow for that and allow not only restoration to the individual who has brought forth, you know, a complaint, but also to the community that's impacted. I can't, I can't tell you how many times it has impacted an entire floor of a residence hall or, you know, a a sports team or all of those things. And so I think when done correctly, um, and with people who are really trained facilitators, that these, that, that the alternative dispute resolution options can be really powerful, especially as an educational process, right, that you were talking about earlier, um, that so much of our misconduct is centered around. And so uh, I'm really excited about that possibility. But again, I think the the sort of lack of um, lack of guidance around what that looks like also concerns me. And I, you know, I think back to, and again, this is 
prior to the 2011 letter, but I remember going to a campus where when I was first starting my position, you know, the idea was, well, anything that you hear about, you report to a student conduct um, director and the, the, the words literally were um, that person will have a talking to with the person who's been accused. And that was their alternative, you know, sort of informal process. Um, and so, and again, like I said, that was before the 2011, you know, dear colleague letter, but I think, I worry about us returning to that. And so that's my fear. Um, and I think that's balanced out by my, my sincere hope that, that some of these alternative dispute resolution processes will be done in a really measured way and that there will, um, campuses will point to best practices and, you know, be driven by data on this and what works and, um, you know, reducing recidivism. And, and I think there's a whole other conversation that we could have around, um, you know, what the former processes were doing, which is to remove a student from campus who then goes to a different campus and, you know, hasn't learned anything and um, has just, you know, sort of gone through a punitive, you know, investigation process and adjudication process. So I think um, I- I'm I'm excited about the potential for that, um, for both respondents and um, survivors who come forward to participate in those types of processes. I just, um, I wish there was a little bit more flesh around the, the bones of what that might look like from the department. Well, I was just going to add that I think that the, the fact that the department has made it optional in this proposed rule, they sort of then remove the costs from implementing a process like that well. So recognizing that the training involved to, to, to run an alternative dispute process, to run a restorative justice process well, and to really make it that educational experience um, for the parties, uh, those are real costs, and those are not costs that our institutions are, are shy of paying, but the, the fact that they, it's sort of an optional thing that kind of sort of slid into the rule with very little bones around it, as, as Jill has talked about, means that they've also not done their due diligence to sort of say, this is what this is going to cost for institutions to do, and been honest about that cost and, and sort of recognizing the, the the cost of this regulation on um, on campuses. And the reason that that's important is sort of weedy, but it has to do with the, the deregulatory regime of the Trump administration and the fact that they're trying to make this case that they're reducing the regulatory burden for college campuses. And I'm not sure that the way that they're doing that is is honest um, to be completely true. I think that they're kind of, they're, they're playing with the numbers a little bit to make it look like they're reducing regulations when really what they're doing is reducing protections for students. One of the things in the guidance that gave me a little bit of pause uh, was this idea that I liked, which was that campuses can choose their own standard of evidence, whether that be preponderance or clear and convincing. The the campus could choose what's best for their community. But at the same time, there seemed to be a bit of a little bit of a backdoor angle in that we should theoretically also be applying similar standards and standards of proof to our employee and labor relations side of the house, which is uh, a little confusing to me. Um, And again, I'm not an attorney. I'm not an employee labor relations expert. uh, But that was something that Uh, really just kind of struck me as slightly odd or potentially concerning um, that was a small detail that could have a huge impact. What do you make of that? So I I will give the caveat as well. I'm also not an attorney and I am not uh, versed in employment contract details, but I do know that that's a false equivalency to, to say that a student conduct proceeding should be run according to the same uh, criteria or level of rigor that a contract negotiation or a violation of of a uh, an ethics code in a in an employment situation, uh, I think that that's a, that creates a a really um, 
odd, it's a, it's a very strange jump to go from a student conduct process to equate that to what would, what would need to happen in an employment or a grievance process. Um, I also think that it's a situation where many campuses are going to find that their hands are tied on the, the setting of an evidentiary standard because they may have collective bargaining agreements where a certain evidentiary standard is, is mandated for, you know, one or more group of employees on campus. Um, there's also the possibility that, I, and again, I'm not an employment attorney and I'm not involved in HR, but um, I don't know enough about things like tenure contracts and tenure agreements. And so if you've got someone who's under a tenure agreement who was tenured 20, 30 years ago, um, you know, would you have to go back and renegotiate that with the individual faculty members? I, again, I don't know if that is the level of detail that's included in those agreements, but I think it's a concern that they're they're making this false equivalency between a student conduct process and the employment um, grievance process, and that they're requiring, they're using that to sort of tie institutions' hands, I think. I think it's a backdoor way into forcing campuses to use a, a higher um, standard of evidence. So I I agree with everything Terry said, but I also, like, my my hunch is that it's rather than sort of taking the controversial route of requiring a higher standard, they're just going to do it this way, knowing that, that doing it this way will force many campuses to, um, unless they want to revise their employment um, policies, that, that they will be forced to move to the higher standard that the employment um, policies currently use. And I think that most of the media coverage of this has been people really focusing on, oh, they're giving campuses this flexibility, but really they're not. So I think this, that, that particular piece of this conversation is, is one that I would love to see more conversation around in higher education circles. I'd love for, for campuses to be able to include that in their comments when they submit comments. You know, what would this actually mean for their campus in terms of the, the employment conversation? Um, just to sort of make it very clear that this one isn't an, an appropriate equivalency, but also that, you know, they're talking about equating things that, you know, could be decades old in, in how they were made. Certainly. And, you know, I, I agree with you. I feel like talking a little bit out of both sides of your mouth, you get a choice. And also it has to be the same as this other standard that you already use, which is probably clear and convincing uh, for employment law. And again, I'm not an employment law expert, but I believe that that is a requirement in many states that we we do have that clear and convincing component for uh, the employment side. But um, Tara, you brought up campuses submitting guidance. So why don't we go ahead and transition to talking about, or submitting comment rather, transition to how we talk about comment and submission of comment. The negotiated rulemaking process, I think, will be new to a lot of professionals. So maybe, Jill, can you give an overview of what it means to enter into negotiated rulemaking and how to submit public comment for consideration? Sure. So I'm actually going to start with a correction because the federal regulatory process is um, dense and opaque, but um, negotiated rulemaking is a process that where you were required to convene a, a board of negotiators. Um, and that process, the, the specific convening of a board of negotiators is only required for regulations that um, relate to certain provisions of the Higher Education Act. And Title IX does not fall under those provisions. So even though it's related to, to the, um, the, the sanctions are related to their um, uh, institution's ability to grant Title IV financial aid, uh, the department is not required to actually convene a negotiating board for this piece of regulation. What they're doing instead is they're going through what's called a notice and comment period. So the department has published the proposed rule in the Federal Register. It was published on uh, November 29th, so Thursday. And that opened a 60-day public notice and comment period. So any member of the public can now submit comments 
to any aspect of the rule. Um, it's not limited to institutions. It's not limited by, you know, any particular, you know, role on campus. Um, individuals can and should submit comments on this rule in addition to their institutional comments if their institution are, are submitting comments. Um, associations will also submit comments. Um, certainly, you know, advisor or uh, uh, advocacy groups will submit comments, both um, uh, complainant and respondent advocacy groups. So there's going to be a lot of interest and a lot of comments coming through with this. And what that means is all of those comments are required to be reviewed and responded to by the department. So we want the comments that are submitted should be should be substantive. They should be something that, you know, this is why I believe that this piece of this rule would be um, damaging for students or this is why I think it would be damaging for institutions or, you know, conversely, why I think this would, this is a good piece that should be maintained. So if we want to talk about the maintenance of the alternative dispute resolutions, you can say something like, you know, this is a good thing. We want to see this happen, but we also would like to see a little bit more guidance and information provided to how campuses can do it well. The department then is required to respond to all of those comments when they issue the proposed rule. And specifically what they're required to respond to is whether or not they make changes to what they have proposed for the rule in releasing their final rule. Um, or if they have not decided to make changes that were recommended from comments. So it's kind of a, a weedy process. We do have a document that goes through what the federal regulatory notice and comment period is. Um, I'm happy to share that with you so that you can share that with your listeners, kind of lays out the steps and, and kind of tries to demystify a little bit what this regulatory process is, because it is a confusing and opaque piece of administrative policy. Do you think that the department is is going to be thoughtful about the comments they receive or perhaps on the other side, um, just saying, oh, we have to go through the 60-day period because it's required. We're not going to make any changes. So I think that depends on who you ask. I think there's a lot of those of us like me, the people like me who to sort of live and breathe in, in policy in D.C., um, some some folks are really jaded and they, they think that this is all just for show and that the department is going to kind of do what they want to do no matter what. Others, though, uh, really, you know, sort of like the, we want to give that the trust that we give to our campuses for the good work that we're doing. We also want to give that trust to the administrators that work within the federal government, so the career employees that work there. We really want to make sure that we give them credit for wanting to do well and wanting to govern our country well. So I think that it, it depends a little bit on who you ask. Um, personally, I get, and it's sort of taking aside my NASPA hat and putting it over on the counter. Um, it depends on the day for me. Um, I genuinely believe that there are people within the department who are trying to do what's best for students. Um, I may disagree with them about what that looks like, but I think that they're really trying to produce regulation and governance that is going to do what, uh, going to provide appropriate coverage for institutions, appropriate protections for students, and, and they're trying to, to walk that line. So I know there are several pointed questions included in the regulation um, where the, the department has really specifically said we're looking for public input on this. I would take another word at that. I would say yes, if you have an opinion about that, include it in the comment. Because if nothing else, what that means is that they're going to have to respond to why they didn't make a change to that when they issue the final rule. And that sort of, you know, the, the long view of that is that puts them on record of having to explain their reasons. Um, and then if at some point that reasoning is challenged in a, a court case, then it's, it's in writing, it's documented, and it's rather, we're not working off of speculation. I also think the rules are a really great point where, like, anybody on campus who touches this issue should be involved in helping formulate comments. And I would hope that, you know, the 
the the people at the helm, the vice presidents and, you know, uh, assistant vice presidents that are maybe leading these efforts will really look around campus to see who all does this work and then incorporate their voices. And I think campuses have a lot of data that they have access to that will be really useful in making substantive comments around, um, you know, this many of our students would request informal processes every time or this number of students chose not to engage in a Title IX process because it's adversarial. And so we'll have this many fewer, you know, students who report under the more adversarial model. So I just think that there are a lot of, a lot of really, there's a lot of really valuable information that campuses have access to that they can utilize when formulating their comments. What happens after the department has responded to everybody's comment um, in the process? Sure. So after the 60-day comment period is over, um, there's not a set timeline for how long it will take the department to sort of release their final rule and, and put out that response to the comments and kind of figure, you know, maybe a ballpark is somewhere between, you know, four to eight months depending on how many comments they get and, and how detailed they are in, in terms of uh, providing the responses as well as if they're, you know, if they're making changes to the rule, then that requires them to then go through the processes internally of, you know, running it by their, their own counsel and kind of getting feedback from the other agencies that might be involved. So the, the timeline is a little bit murky, but I think that you can, it's probably not going to be real, real soon um, just for, you know, point of comparison, uh, we, we also had federal notice and comment periods for gainful employment and the borrower defense to repayment rules released this fall. Uh, those comment periods ended at the end of September. We still haven't seen final rules on those. Those rules are, are much narrower than the Title IX uh, notice of pro- or, uh, proposed rule. Um, this is the first time that we've ever done this notice and comment process for Title IX. So it's going to be a, a lot more complex to work through some of these um, the proposals in the in the proposed rule. So I think that we're, we're likely to see a longer review period. I don't think it'll be too long though, because I know that they they obviously want to get um, some solid guidance out to campuses and they want to get you know the the rules in place. Um, once that final rule is released from by the department and published in the federal registers, they have to give at least 60 days for campuses to implement and to come into compliance with that. Um, I believe they can choose to give a longer implementation period. So, you know, if you kind of do the math in the back of your head and kind of back of an envelope and figure it all out, I mean, really what this means for campuses is we're not going to see a final rule that they're going to have to implement on their campuses probably until early 2020. Um, That's my, my best guess. Um, and again, a lot of that depends on how long it takes them to do that review of all the comments and response, and then whether or not they give longer than the required 60 days for campuses to do implementation. And when we think about um, kind of the interim gap, what advice do you have for campuses in terms of practice? Keep doing what you're doing, because really that's that's legally under the law. That's what you're required to be, you know, the, the guidance that's that's in place now is the the guidance that campuses should be following. Um, I think that if campuses feel like they need to to hedge or they need to start internal processes to potentially come in compliance with an eventual rule, I would advise on being really cautious about starting any of that now because things can change between now and the final rule. Um, and and even once the final rule is implemented, you know if there's if there are pieces of it that are are challenged in courts and there's a stay of implementation, I think that any changes that you might consider making now would be premature. I mean, really keeping the focus on providing protection for your students, um, you know, doing the good work that we're doing on our campuses, that, that's really going to be the, the best thing that we can do in the interim. So this is obviously a different process than what we saw happen in 2014. Um, so I'm wondering if you could just briefly describe 
why this process is happening in this way versus the way the 14 process rolled out? Sure. So this is, again, going into sort of the the difference between regulatory guidance and and formal regulation and and Mm -hmm. proposed rule. This is kind of weedy, again, in that sort of administrative regulation um, procedures uh, uh, conversation. Um, Up to now, um, sexual harassment and sexual assault under Title IX has never been a subject to what's called formal regulatory action. So formal regulatory action requires that the government... Um, release a proposed action, they open it for public comment, they reply to the public comment, um, and then they issue a, a final regulation. So that final regulation from a, a formal um, notice and comment period process then it carries the weight of law. It is binding on institutions. It is it is an official government interpretation of legislation that has been passed by Congress. Um, and that's the role of the executive agencies is to provide that sort of what does this mean on in day-to-day terms for the people that are subject to this law? How are they supposed to comply with it? Uh, previously, uh, so up until now, what's been done uh, to interpret Title IX for campuses is considered sub-regulatory guidelines. So, dear colleague letters, Q&A documents, um, you know, interim guideline, interim guidance, whatever you choose to call it, that's all sub-regulatory guidance. And technically, it's interpretation that really isn't quite half the full force of law. It's certainly the the best thing that campuses can do. Um, it's the best guidance that they should follow. It's it's but it's not um, it's not as formal. It's not as um, settled as a full notice and comment period. So I think that the reason. Um, the Trump administration and, and Secretary DeVos are really moving forward to do formal guidance on this is one, because we don't have it and this will answer, give some finality, um, give some, some permanence to the, um, the regulations. You know, these, these are regulations that in order to be changed, once this rule goes into place, they have to then go back through this process, this formal notice and comment period process in order to make changes to the regulations. With sub-regulatory guidance, you know, as we saw Secretary DeVos do uh, last year, you can just decide that you don't want whatever was done by a previous administration to apply anymore and change the rules. So that permanence and that that sort of um, substantial nature of, of a formal regulation, I think, is why we're seeing that come through. Um, the motives as to, as to why they want to do that now, that uh, I mean, why that wasn't done previously, I'll, I'll leave that um, to people you know, to speculate about. But but that's the difference between sort of what happened before and, and what this process is. Jill, and you want to jump in and add anything? Feel free. No, I, you've covered it really well. <laughs> so I, I have nothing to add there. That's really helpful. I think um, for those of us, you know, who don't touch the federal policy process lately or or a lot. Um, anyway, I think that's really, really helpful. As we wrap up our hour today, is there anything else you think that practitioners should know right now? I think I might just say that I, I think it's really important to keep communicating with students. Um, that They're, I think, hearing a lot about this in various forms and not everything they are hearing may be true. And so um, we, you know, we're the front facing people that work to support students. And so I think letting them know what the institution is doing and maybe involving student voices in, you know, comment or drafting comments um, might be helpful or, you know, just I, I think keeping those lines of communication open so that students don't feel like they're in the dark about what's happening. Um, because this is a this is a reality for students, you know, that are impacted by this issue every day. So I think that's my main concern is is um, making sure that we're reassuring students that we're um, looking at these these comments and and that our goal is to 
ensure fair processes as it always has been um, and that we will continue to do so and that um, in those instances where we feel like the the regulations may not um, provide for equitable processes that we will challenge those in the ways that um, have been laid out for us through through the notice and comment period. And I would add um, that, you know, Jill mentioned this earlier that, you know, hopefully campuses will submit comments um, during the notice and comment period. And, and if this is something that that is a, an area that you work in every day and you haven't heard conversations, you haven't been involved in conversations on your campus about submitting a comment, um, be proactive, you know, step up talk to your, you know, if you're not the VPSA, talk to your VPSA, um, see if you can get this, this raised with your campus leadership team, um, talk to your government affairs uh, or um, public affairs staff or university communication staff or whoever would be um, sort of coordinating that effort. Um, because the, the, the real day-to-day lived experience of professionals that are working in this area with students, that's invaluable information to share with the department. Um, I mentioned before that, you know, there's 3,500 degree ranting institutions in the country and we're all very different. So so if we can provide, um, you know, sort of concrete examples of what this looks like for as many different contexts as possible, that's, that's really rich information that can help the department make better regulation and better, um, you know, help govern our country better and our institutions better from the federal uh, level. So really just get involved. Um, and if you're, you know, not sure about how to do that or what to do, or if you run into a situation where your campus is like, yeah, we're not going to submit a comment, um, know that you can too, as an individual person, any member of the public can submit a comment. And like I said, NASPA, we're, we'll be doing some information sessions uh, the first week of December. They'll be recorded. People can, can tune into them. But we've also got other materials that help people who want to make comments as individuals do that in a way that they don't sort of risk speaking on behalf of their institution. Because if you're speaking as a public or as a private citizen, you want to make sure that that's clear in your comments. But you also still can draw on your professional experience and expertise in making your comments. It's that views are my own kind of disclaimer. That's great advice. Uh, Now, we always like to end our show with asking about what you are reading. Sure, I could start. Um, I'm actually in the middle of um, reading Good and Mad, The uh, Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger by Rebecca Traister. So um, I had the opportunity to hear her speak about it um, um, at an event, and I'm I'm really enjoying it. So I feel like uh, the book that I've just finished reading, I I need to... Um, issue a trigger warning for, particularly for this conversation. Uh, it's Who Fears Death by um, Mindy Okaforo, uh, or, or Korofor, rather, and um, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. It's a, a fantasy book um, set in Africa, um, but it is uh, very definitely uh, needs a trigger warning for um, explicit rape and violence, so it's, it's, it doesn't shy away from those topics, but particularly following this podcast, I, I feel it's necessary to give that warning to readers who might need to prepare themselves if they want to try and read it. And if folks want to reach either of you after the show ends today, how can they do that? Sure. My email address is jdunlap um, at naspa.org, or um, I'm also on Twitter as naspajill. And following the format, my email address is thines, H-I-N-D-S, at naspa.org. And I'm also on Twitter as at Terry Lynn Hines, T-E-R-I-L-Y-N-H-I-N-D-S. And if you'd like to reach the podcast, you can find us on Twitter at ASCA Podcast. That's A-S-C-A-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Or you can always email us at ASCAPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much, Jill and Terry, for sharing your viewpoint today.
Thanks for having us. Next time on the ASCA Viewpoints podcast, two weeks-ish from now, we will welcome Christina Parl. Christina serves as an assistant director in the Office of Student Conduct at KU or the University of Kansas. Christina is a newer professional and also serves as the director of membership on the ASCA Board of Directors, and we'll be digging in on intersectional identity and what it's like to rise in the profession right now as a new professional. We hope you'll come back and join us. This episode was produced and hosted by Jill Creighton, that's me, produced, edited, and mixed by Colleen Mater. Special thanks to New York University's Office of Student Conduct and Community Standards and to the University of Oregon's Dean of Students team for allowing us the time and space to create this project. If you're enjoying the podcast, we ask that you please like, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps others discover us and helps us become more visible in the general podcasting community. If you have suggestions for future guests or would like to be featured on the podcast yourself, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at ASCA Podcast or by email at ASCAPodcast at gmail.com.